ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Maggie McKellar is a sheep farmer in northeastern Tasmania and a writer. She grew up in the suburbs of Sydney, but her happiest times as a kid were spent on her grandparents' farm in western New South Wales. In fact, Maggie loved being there so much that when she was 10 and had to leave the farm to face a new term of school in the city, her mum found her sobbing in bed the night before school started. To try and comfort her, Maggie's mum went and fetched a pen and paper and drew a graph of Maggie's life. She wrote down all the things that Maggie loved. Riding, working with sheep and dogs, raising chooks, gardening, watching birds. And showed with her pen how, over the long span of Maggie's time on earth, she'd be able to devote herself to all those things. Maggie has certainly done that over the years. But she's also had to face a lot that neither she nor her mum imagined would be in her future. Maggie's new book is called Graft, Motherhood, Family and A Year on the Land. Hi, Maggie. Hello, Sarah. It is really such a lovely and I think a wise thing for your mum to have done when she found you all upset about having to face another term of school in the city. Was it a comfort, do you remember? Oh, such a comfort. My mum was a, an incredibly wise, deep, funny, insightful, creative woman. And the fact that she even had time to gift me that and to take my emotions seriously after she would have had driven the three of us back from the farm that day, which involved my older brother, who is autistic, profoundly autistic. He has no spoken language. Um, and she would have had the three of us in the car for five hours, no air conditioning and a dog in the back. And she would have packed us up and then unpacked us when we got home. And so to have the energy to take a small person's grief really at how impossible life felt at that moment is utterly typical or was <laughs> utterly typical of her. And it, it really speaks to how well she knew you and knew what you loved, that she could write that list about the things that were important to you. Yes, I feel very privileged to have been well mothered. <laughs> Tell me about this, this place that you loved so much, this first farm in your life. Whereabouts was it and, and what did it look like? It's a in the centre of the universe, <laughs> at Kidal, which is about 45 kilometres outside of Orange in the central west New South Wales. Yeah, it's the country of my heart, I think. I loved that place with an innocence and a fervour that um, you really only get to do once as, an, as a child, I think. Um, yeah, so rolling hills, beautiful big box trees. Um, incredible Mount Canobolis always on the horizon, um, sort of a climate of four distinct seasons. Yeah, and I can, I just know that, still know that country. I could describe it, the rocks that, that sit outside the back of the homestead, the um, line of the creek, all of those things really deep in me. What are your memories of the old wool shed on the farm? <laughs> There's two wool sheds on that farm and the old one was converted into a ram shed and I have very strong memories of working with my grandfather, working in quotation marks, I must have been about five or six, um, as he was looking after stud, the stud rams and so I would go with him every day, um, the two of us out into that place and mix up the, the feed in the big bin and the small responsibilities that farm children are gifted they feel so enormous that you're put in charge of opening the gate or banging the feed out into the troughs or um, counting the sheep in. Whatever small task I was given uh, felt like uh, gave me an importance in the world that I didn't have in the city. Um, Do you think your granddad liked having you around or were you a nuisance? I think I was probably both, but I also think I caught him as sometimes happens in families. I was the right age and he was the right age. Um, he'd slowed down an, an enormous amount and was in the process of, very difficult process of handing the reins over to my aunt and uncle. Um, and he, I think he was finding it difficult to let go. So I was 
possibly a job <laughs> for him to look after. But he also gifted me his love of birds, um, love of sheep, and the art of noticing, I guess, the idea that you can stand still and watch a mob of sheep and pick out who the leaders are and the hierarchy. You mentioned that your older brother is profoundly autistic. How young were you when you realised he was different, do you think? What are the early memories you have of how he was in the home? He, He was never different in our family. It was the shock of shame being out in public with him that I first realised he was different. You know, we couldn't go to the supermarket, for instance. We had our food delivered because he found being in a shopping centre too overwhelming. Um, So he never felt different to me until I saw him through other people's eyes that were outside the family. Um, He doesn't have any real language. He's my older brother. My younger brother and I are both reasonably skilled in understanding what he is saying. And he was at that age in our childhood, very frustrated, of course. So he was set off by things that other children would not even notice. So we became very skilled at walking into a situation and understanding that a police siren going past would upset him or a a, a loud noise outside of it or some music or talking, lots of people talking or or too many things being on. And we also knew what soothed him, you know, he was obsessed with running water. Did that mean at home, Maggie, that it kind of felt a bit like walking on eggshells for you and your brother? Were you conscious of trying not to distress him or? Oh, I think we were completely selfish and probably drove our mother absolutely mad in that we just continued on around it. I mean, my mum used, I have memories of my mum, she just became, she could do anything in the household. She used to uh, our brother used to block the toilet. He would try and flood the toilet. That was one of his things that he loved to do. Or he would tip a whole container of washing powder into a washing machine and then turn it on. So my mum became this expert plumber. She bought herself an electric eel, so she stopped having to call the plumber and she would go and unblock the drains. And I still have memories of her coming back in and just us asking for dinner and her just being exhausted by the daily grind of parenting such a child, just thinking of sewerage and just sort of saying, you know, just let me, could I just have a shower or at least wash my <laughs> Did she get any support from external helpers in, in caring? Oh, she you? had a wonderful support system through her church, not as sort of a institutional support. She had no institutional support. She was also basically a single mother <laughs> because my father was absent in a very demanding job. So, yeah, she was an incredible woman. And I guess to get back to your question about how my brother and I were affected by this, I think one of the things that I didn't really realise until I started writing about the experience of being the sibling of a person who didn't have any spoken language was he taught me to see the world in different layers. So the spoken word wasn't the primary way that he experienced the world. So he taught me to read body language. He taught me to read intention rather than what people said. Um, And I feel like those are very, well, they're wonderful gifts for a writer, aren't they? (laughs) So your dad was was away from home a lot because he was a politician, a minister actually in, in the Fraser government. How did he explain his work to you? We were always a little confused about what he did. I don't really remember him explaining. Mum was the interpreter of our worlds. But our father would arrive home in a Commonwealth car with another car behind him filled with green plastic folders that would be unloaded onto his desk and he would have to work work through. We were actually more used to seeing him on television than we were to seeing him in person. There's a lovely family story of mum yelling to my younger brother and I who were playing down in this very long and deep garden we had that, quick, come and see your dad, to which we ran up the garden shouting, what channel's he on? Oh, wow. <laughs> so it, it, was, it, it was a 
a family of two halves in some way. It felt strange when Dad was home. So you'd, you'd grown up with, you know, living in the city, but with this great love of the farm and a, a real first-hand experience of what life on a farm could be like. Is that what you imagined you'd do as you became a young adult? I always imagined that that was where I would end up, but I think that changed kind of dramatically as I got older and realised that nobody else saw that for me. And school and and university and 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 love kind of took me away from that real core sense of self. Um, and I think it was a time where both of my parents grew up in the country my and they told a story of escaping that to the city and to have a child that wanted to return, I think was almost, you know, they, they wanted to talk me out of that constantly. They, they were like, you've got a, a good brain. And, and I think agriculture is seen very differently now than it was sort of 40 years ago. It wasn't open to me in the same way. So what adventures did you set off on as a young woman? <laughs> I guess one adventure was getting married very young, uh, which possibly in hindsight was a way out of the chaos of our family life to a certain extent. And anyway, I did meet this wonderful man and we set off for Alaska. And Alaska? Alaska. Why Alaska? <laughs> I don't know. It felt like <laughs> the most extreme place you could go. And that sort of feeling of going to a place that had a frontier, that was still this sort of frontier mentality and and a landscape that was so extremely different to anything that we had ever experienced. Um, together we did a outdoor guiding course. We spent three months in the Alaskan wilderness. It, was, it wasn't so much outward bound, which is what people think about it. It was called the National Outdoor Leadership School, and it was very much a course to teach you how to be a guide. For my husband, it was he was wanting to sort of go into that as a career. So we did it together and we spent a month kayaking on Prince William Sound. It was stepping into a world that I didn't know could exist. It was like stepping into a fairy tale, um, though with real life dangers. Um, it rained for 13 days in a row without ceasing, like not sort of soft rain, but abs- I've never been so wet in my life. I, I used to try and keep one pair of socks dry, which I kept in my sleeping bag, which was in two garbage bags inside a wet bag. If I could keep that dry, I could stay you sane. could go on. Yeah. Yes. So that, that landscape was just incredible. And then again, we'd spent another month in the Talkeetna Range. So that was sort of this wide open, you're walking on caribou trails that were literally thousands of years old. And then in the mountains of um, Denali, we climbed a couple of mountains, Silver Throne. Yeah, so that was amazing. You, As you say, you, you married young. Were kids always part of the plan for you as well early on? I think I was married so young that I didn't hadn't occurred to me to think about that. So no, they weren't. And when I discovered I was pregnant in Alaska at the age of 24, I was, I was shocked. Yeah, it, all it, that rain. I guess you had yeah. to do something. <laughs> it was, we were in a blizzard for some days. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it, and it meant that the year that we had planned to be away, I came. We came back to Australia. I think I was. I hadn't even seen a doctor. I was nearly six months pregnant by the time I saw a doctor. But also so healthy, and you know, your twenty-four-year-old body is actually pretty geared up to have a baby. So instead of this adventure, we came back to. Australia. And I picked up doing a PhD because that offered me the chance to, it was, I had a scholarship to do that. So it was something I'd planned to do in the future, but it seemed naively to fit really well with having a baby. (laughs) PhD, newborn. Yeah. I was imagining myself breastfeeding and reading at the same time. (laughs) Things were very different, Maggie, for the birth of your son five years Later, what had happened when you were pregnant with him? Um, we actually decided to get pregnant with with my son, but while I was very in the very early stages of pregnancy, my husband came down with a severe case of chickenpox, actually, and this set off a psychotic 
episode of depression, rolling depression and anxiety that we never really got on top of. It just, it hit him hard. I didn't really know what I was dealing with. He was in and out of psych wards. I was pregnant. It was a really traumatic time. The psychiatric care is at a crisis level. So you're either at a crisis or you're on your own. And somewhere in between those two places, we didn't, I mean, he was in a secure psychiatric ward and he scaled a a brick wall that was meant to be unscalable. And um, yeah, he died. And you were then still pregnant with your son and had to go through the experience of giving birth in this, you know, extraordinary grief. I can't quite imagine, Maggie, how difficult that must have been. What what do you remember about those moments of holding your newborn baby boy? It's such a time of emotion at any point, but given what was going on in your life over those last few months, it must have been an incredibly loaded moment to meet this little baby. It was, but he was such a gift, this small child. Like he was so perfect. And I was, I found myself at one of those moments in your life where you think all the things that you thought were really important suddenly ceased to be important. I was quite ambitious as a university lecturer. I had imagined myself moving up through the food chain. And at that moment, I suddenly knew that the only real task I had was to be a mother to these children. And that was the only thing I wanted to do also. And it took a little while to marry that impulse with the reality of how to do that. For a while, I kind of battled on with that, trying to be both a mother and uh, and lecturing at uni. And I used to often think, I wish my job wasn't something where I had to stand up and sound intelligent because not only I'm suffering from sleep deprivation, <laughs> juggling two small children, and yeah, it was it was a lot. And my mother was being a tremendous support to me during that time. She would pick up my daughter from school, or she would have her before school, and she was kind of creating this really rich childhood for my daughter that was outside of the grief. And she was so helpful in helping my tiny daughter understand where her father had gone and what what death was and she was so helpful to me too in not pathologizing a child's grief like in allowing her to grieve and to ask questions and to um, move in and out of sadness really fast in that way kids do you know so so I I had a lot of support there but this attempt to to juggle the academic world and being the parent you wanted to be wasn't possible. So what momentous change did you make about the way you were living, the three of you? Well, just when you think things can't get much worse, um, my mother was diagnosed with cancer with an unknown primary. So she um, died very quickly. She died in 10 weeks from diagnosis and that left my younger brother and I with our older brother and the logistics of finding care around to find him in a safe situation because he had been living with my mother. My younger brother did the most amazing job during this time because I was just barely coping with the demands of a small toddler and a six-year-old. And and so I took sabbatical. I took a semester off and went home to my aunt and uncle. How lucky was I? I moved into the little flat in their garden with the kids and I didn't come back. (laughs) Did it feel right to be in the country immediately? Was that part of it? It felt so right. And I had had a friend's dear mother, who's a very dear friend of mine, say to me, in helping me make this decision, she said we were sitting in her backyard in in Newtown over a pot of tea and she said, just could you just fantasise what that would look like? Just give yourself permission to fantasise what life would look like not teaching at Sydney Uni. And, you know, when you're caught in that that sandstone world of you think that's the most important thing um, and I was thinking I have to create a, a strong career in order to support my kids and having that fantasy just... 
I thought, I, I don't actually have to do that. Like, what, what would life look like? And suddenly I was, instead of putting my, dressing my son in the clothes he was going to go to childcare the night before, so it was one less job to do in the morning, and strapping him in to the car seat at 7.30 in the morning and getting back home at 6.30, 7 o'clock at night and just having enough money to basically pay the rent and childcare, I went to a place where the kids just met the school bus at the end of the ramp. My kids just came out of themselves and, yeah, it, it immediately felt the right thing to do and it immediately was apparent that I wasn't going back. The ABC TV series Australian Story did a show about what had happened to your husband and about your new life on the farm. What happened out of that, Maggie, after it was screened on TV? Well, we'd been there about seven years when Australian Story did that show, and that was out of the back of my first memoir, um, which I guess covered the ground that we've just talked about. But that was an extremely challenging experience. And the, I guess the result of that was something that I had never expected. And that was that I met somebody who wrote to my literary agent, just a letter of, he'd seen the show and, and he was a farmer in Tasmania. And his mother and my father had worked together. So I was able to say to dad, do you remember Cheryl? <laughs> and he said, oh, yes, I do. So I felt confident writing back to him and we developed a email correspondence and a relationship out of that. You kind of almost rolled your eyes when I asked you that question, Maggie McKellar. Is it not a great romantic part of your story? What, what's your hesitation about this ultimate meet-cute, the Australian know, story as um, <laughs> classifieds? I, yeah, my literary agent, she just was like, what has happened? Because... Bizarrely, there was he was not alone, which is just I just was, what you a, a there range were quite of young suitors contacted us. Yes, had no idea. Yeah, it, and they only afforded me the most suitable ones, but it was kind of like a the 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 local swim club. I would take them to to swimming training in the afternoon because everybody thought it was whatever my agent had had afforded me. I don't mean to make fun, but it was something that was so unexpected. I just, so when I, you're right to say I rolled my eyes. I only roll my eyes because I think when tragedies occur in people's lives, the people around them, the people that watch Australian Story even, who relate really strongly for that, want a perfect outcome for it. And despite the fact that People want to cast my partner as the knight in shining armour. I really resist that story that meeting someone transforms your life and saves you from the tragedy that you've experienced. And now everyone can take a deep sigh of relief and think, oh, we don't, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm expressing myself clearly there, but it's... No, I think you are. It's like the reality of what had happened to you and your kids were still there. The the pain of that was still there and the rebuilding you'd done was still there. And this sounds like a, a lovely other thing that happened, but it wasn't like you were waiting for this. I, I most definitely wasn't. And I also, like it was it was just like any other relationship. It's a, it's, I just resist this idea of a happy ever after, not because it's not happy ever after. Like it has been an extremely rich and wonderful up and down normal relationship. You know, my, my partner's been a, a wonderful father figure and has given my kids a much bigger life. Um, but, but we were also warts and all, like it hasn't, hasn't always been great. And everyone knows that working and living on with a farmer is not exactly um, a bed of roses. What was your first visit to his farm like? Uh, it was, um, it was really hard to understand what I was seeing, um, because he lives in a very old house on the east coast of Tasmania. The house was built in 1825 by convicts. It kind of has a fortress-type feel to it, but it's a very beautiful and storied place. So I I was unsure. It was so different from the place that where I was. I didn't really understand what I was doing. I ended up I ended up down there. I didn't really understand what that looked like. I thought I was moving to a very 
similar rural community, but Tasmania is really different to central west New South Wales. The farming community is really different down there. And I've made brilliant friends, but um, it's taken a while. And you were having to also move your, your kids who'd been through so much disruption in their young life already. What did uh, your partner Jim build in the front paddock as a bit of a lure? Oh, everybody will know exactly where we are on the East Coast when I say this. He built, and this is very typical of him, He, my son was rugby obsessed. And so he built out of irrigation pipes a set of rugby posts in the front paddock in deep Aussie-Australian rules territory. This is Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So this Tasmanian farm that you moved to a decade or so ago, what does it look like, Maggie? Uh, So the East Coast is a really narrow strip of land between these beautiful white sand, pristine beaches and the Eastern Tiers. And we have like a whole range of soil on our farm. There's this incredible deep chocolate river flat where, I don't know, it's the kind of soil that grows babies. It's so beautiful. And then we have very light sandy country, which is great for sheep who like a view. (laughs) (laughs) It's very different to the country that where I was in the Central West. And the sheep are really different. I grew up with the British breed sheep that bred for lamb chops. And my partner, Jim's, got a great love for a fine wool merino. And you could almost call those two subsets of sheep to be a different species. I had in their to, temperament or yeah, just the in way their they temperament, look? Yeah, in the way they look, in their temperament, in their desire to live. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there will be sheep farmers all over the country who will know exactly what I'm talking about. The merino is fickle. It's either incredibly tough or just turns its toes up and dies. And do you and Jim have different roles day to day on the farm? Oh, you? definitely, yeah. I am I'm just Girl Friday. Like I'm just there to, can, you know, at the end of the two-way to come and open a gate, hold a spanner, bring a vehicle up, pick somebody up. But I, you know, it's it's work that I, I love being involved in the farm, the running of the farm. I help in the yards. At shearing time, I'm a shearer's cook, which was something that I had not ever expected to do. And, you know, when you're sitting down doing a PhD, you don't really imagine that at some point in your future you'll be cooking for shearers. Having said that, our shearers are the best bunch of people and I'd love them dearly. So, yeah, I am very hands-on in the yards as well. Lambing time, I'm definitely there helping. Why does autumn feel like the beginning of the year at your place? Autumn is when the rams go out. It's the start of the cycle. It's waiting for that autumn break, waiting for the rain to come, hoping that we'll get some rain in the last bit of the growing season before the winter starts. And, you know, it's when the trees lose lose their leaves and it looks like it's the end of something, but really it's the beginning of the next season. What's this autumn break? The autumn break is is the last opportunity for a good rain before the winter. So before the, like the days are really short where we are, the shortest in Australia, and the soil gets really cold and the grass stops growing. So we need a rain to get pastures going that have been sown for a spring summer grazing. Yeah. And how reliable are those rains in the, the years you've been on the farm? They're not reliable. (laughs) I'm not on the east coast of Tasmania, which is a little different to the rest of Tassie. Um, Yeah, my experience prior to this very wet season we're coming out of was that we didn't get an autumn break. We never seemed to get one. Yeah, we had sort of a few years of not great seasons and then, then we had a rolling drought that was just pretty devastating as it was across a huge amount of the eastern seaboard. How does the the look of the farm change when those rains don't come? It gets very bare in the drought. It looks sick. 
it just it looked like something that had a terminal disease. So you lose all your ground cover, the water holes dry up, the creeks dry up, the trees start dying. On the one hand, the scavengers on the place, the eagles and the devils and the, the crows, they all do really well because, yeah, the grazing animals really suffer. It just must take such a toll on the way you feel, not just the practicalities of this financially is difficult for us, but it just must be an incredibly bleak kind of time to be living in the midst of a drought like that. I think that it's really hard for people to explain how psychologically difficult it is. You're going deeper and deeper into debt. You're having to make decisions over whether you continue buying feed for animals that are worth very little, but they're also that your foundation breed stock that you've spent generations building up and to to sell them. I mean, when it's really bad, which it is just starting again. People are talking about shooting stock because they're worth nothing and they don't have the capacity to feed them. So this is what we're facing again. And I think it's very hard for people to talk about it when you're in it. When uh, it comes time for the ewes to have their, their babies, where on the farm does that happen? We scan our ewes to work out whether they're having one lamb or two lambs or three lambs, and then they are divided into mobs according to age group and um, how many lambs they're having, and then they're put in their lambing paddocks. So a lambing run for us is going around and looking through, sitting up on the on a ridge line and, and looking down on a paddock through binoculars, and really we're just looking for ewes that are in trouble. Once the the lamb's out, Maggie, once it's been born, what happens next when things go well? When things go well, uh, you will um, spin around and and lick her lamb. You know, she will just, it's, I always, I describe it as as colouring in the edges of the lamb. You know, a, a lamb when it's born, its hooves are really soft and they harden over the next few hours. And no matter how many times I watch it, it always gives me a thrill to watch the instinct of a mother and a newborn lamb connect. And it's as she licks her hormone surge, um, the lambs can take, they can be on their feet in in minutes and looking, they're, they're, they're hunting for her udder. So always a wonderful thing to watch. What about when things don't go wrong? What can interrupt that moment of really deep bond between a, a mother and her baby lamb? Uh, I think during the drought, um, it's things going wrong is the percentage of time that things don't go to plan is heightened because we breed for a mother, a strong mothering instinct. So we are breeding selectively for ewes that will stay with their lambs. Um, and at the same time that you has a terribly basic instinct to survive. So even though she is being looked after, she's being fed, she's being hand-fed with pellets and hay, she still knows somewhere in her body that this is not a good season to raise a lamb and for herself to survive, the best thing she can do is walk away from that lamb. So when things don't go to plan, they can go don't not go to plan a couple of ways. A, a lamb can get stuck in a ewe, so you have to pull the lamb and often that's exaggerated during drought in that the ewe will be, she could be a a gutsy eater, so she's eating more pellets than her share. She has a bigger lamb than normal than she would if she was foraging naturally. So we might drive into the, if that's the case, you'll see a ewe with a lamb sticking out its butt, to put it frankly, and <laughs> you'll go and pull that lamb and hopefully, best case scenario, both you and lamb survive. Otherwise, you might you might see a ewe abandon a lamb, give birth and walk away. So that's another situation. And what do you do when that happens? Well, often you don't see that happening. So you'll just find an abandoned lamb. We actually saw a, a you give birth to a lamb and literally walk away. We were watching through the binoculars. We were nowhere near her. There was no pressure on her. There was no reason that she should have walked away from that lamb except that deeper instinct of survival. Or maybe she just didn't want to be a mother. I don't know. These particular ewes who do this drive my partner absolutely nuts. So <laughs> to watch this ewe do this 
she was in a position in the paddock where we could drive in and cut her out. So we chased her down and and put her on the back of the ute and took her back with with her lamb. And it was incredible. If I hadn't seen her give birth to this lamb with my own eyes, you would swear that these two did not go together. So what happened once they were on the back of the ute together? We took them back to the yards and then I went to work on convincing her to become a mother. (laughs) (laughs) How do you do that? You pin her to, you force her to feed that lamb, basically. And slowly her hormones got going and over a couple of days and she did mother that lamb, but, you know, we would never breed from her again. You often have to be in the position of catching sheep. How do you go about catching a sheep? Maggie? You wish you were younger? <laughs> so, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a rough science. Um, basically, Jim, my partner is a rally driver and will cut a U out and, and I leap from the moving vehicle and jump on it. <laughs> Sounds so elegant. <laughs> it's not. There's skin knees involved often. Um, and what, just grab it around its middle or? Yeah, or, or crash tackle it. You just grab anything you can. <laughs> One of the sheep that you you had to wrestle in this way was named Doris uh, by your partner. Tell me about her and, and the role she had ended up having on the farm. I just need to preface this by saying that she's the only sheep that has a name on the farm. <laughs> not like they have individual names. What makes Doris special then? Doris had this, I don't know whether it was an injury or a congenital defect of some sort. She was a crossbred. So we have two different mobs. We have a a mob of ewes, second class ewes, merino ewes that we put to a terminal sire. So the lambs they have are, are sold as fat lambs. And then the beautiful merinos that are going to have beautiful lambs with wool so fine that you could barely believe it, um, they are put to a merino ram. So Doris is in the fat mob, as we call it, the fat mob. And she has a name simply because she is noticeable. You know, she's one of those sheep that you always, as you're looking over the mob, you're like, oh, there she is. You can see her. And yes, she had a a lamb that um, didn't make it. And she also had a beautiful udder. And so this day we were checking, we noticed that she'd got the lamb out, but it wasn't alive. Um, and my partner suggested I might like to catch her for a couple of orphan lambs that we had and I could... Is that how he put it to you? I suggest to you, Matt, you might like to catch her. <laughs> Just like that. Get out of the car! <laughs> Grab Doris! <laughs> so I said I wasn't up to it, but he he convinced me and I cornered her in the paddock, And but she's not, she's not a merino. She's not a sort of a a timid sort of something that will back off from you. She just took one look at me and ran straight over the top of me. So I didn't end up catching her. He caught her with a crook, with a shepherd's crook. And we bundled her up on the back of the ute. And it's funny, I, I find in this putting together of of orphaned lambs with ewes that have lost their lambs, a process that's called grafting, to be just such a fascinating animal behaviour chance to watch animal behaviour, how some ewes will be so accepting of a new lamb and while and others will, you know, try and kill it. And Doris was of the try and kill it variety. And I put this beautiful merino lamb on her, which, you know, if she raised it, that means we've got a, a weather, which is a castrated ram, that will live out its days on the farm, giving us a fleece every year for seven seven years thereabouts. And so I really wanted her to raise this lamb. And we went into battle, I guess, me trying to convince her that she would mother this lamb and she determined that she would not. And it was at about day three, when just as I was on the point of giving up, she started mothering the lamb and then became just as fiercely furious that she was at being asked to mother it. She then became a fierce mother. And I, I just, I love all those little moments that you get to, whisk, you, there's so many failures that so many lambs that don't make it or use that won't mother up, that it's just a delight to celebrate the stories that have the happy endings. Where do you take off to some mornings for a a break from the heavy responsibilities of life on the farm? Oh, we're very lucky to live very close to the coast. So especially during the drought where walking on the farm meant being confronted with 
hungry animals and the desperate, unending nature of drought, I would go to the beach and I would take my dogs down there and sort of lovely three kilometer walk to the end. And I learned down there how to swim in the cold. So you swim all year? Or? All year, yeah. 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 What's the what's your strategy? My strategy is to walk run, depending on my fitness levels, <laughs> to the end of the beach. And then I copied the dogs. I just take my clothes off and jump in. And then when I've had a swim, I get out and I just put my clothes back on Shake again. Shake yourself. Pretty much. <laughs> like I, I, I suddenly learned that all that stuff around how we think about swimming, we don't need it. Like I didn't need a towel. Like there were all these things. Like I thought, I want to swim, but I don't want to have a wet costume on me. I, I don't want to have to carry a towel, but... I just quickly learned that I didn't need any of those things and it just was, it it was like some sort of elixir of renewal every time I would dive into that crisp cold water and it just filled me back up again enough to go back to what we were doing. You remember your, your granddad introducing you to birds and paying attention to birds and that's a love that you've definitely inherited. What are your favourite birds on the farm? Well, they're different. That was the other thing I had to learn about Tasmania. The birds are different down there. Um, so my favourite bird has always been the willy wagtail and there's no willy wagtails where we live and at the time it felt like a great grief <laughs> That, that my talisman bird wasn't there with me. Um, but I've learnt to love the grey fantail, the robins. We have so many beautiful robins. So those little tiny birds I love. But, yeah, we have eagles and swans and the, the grey strike thrush. Like, it's just, I could talk to you for ages about birds. Well, one day when you were out walking on the farm, you came across an injured wedge tail eagle, what was it like? Well, I should say that the wedgetails in Tassie are endangered and they are a different subspecies to the ones on the mainland. They're bigger. They're, so if you think of wedge, wedgies big up on the mainland, the Tassie eagles are bigger again. And yeah, when I, like, so, uh, there's nothing more thrilling to sort of crane your neck and watch an eagle soaring. Something just about how effortless that is. But when you see one on the ground, you realise just how huge they are. Um, how big those claws are, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the bird was above my waist when standing, you know. It's just they're, they're huge birds. So I didn't really know what to do when I came across that bird. <laughs> where, where did you turn for wisdom? Well, I I rang my partner and said, I found an injured wedgie. He was fixing a plough, desperately trying to get a crop in. Um, so he wasn't that excited about that piece of news, he, but he's very patient with me and he said he'd come and find me. I was about 10 minutes away, 10 minutes drive from where he was and I sat down on a rock and Googled how to catch an eagle. <laughs> what does it tell you? Oh, YouTube tells you everything. <laughs> and how are you supposed to catch an eagle? You surround it. So the two of us surrounded it and sort of worked it. It, it could make these great leaping hops, but it couldn't get airborne. So it'd sort of be airborne for a couple of metres. So we sort of worked it from either side until it flipped itself over and showed its claws, at which point YouTube directed us to throw a coat over it, which we did. And yeah, took it down to the Raptor Rescue, the Raptor Rescue, which is a fantastic operation in Hobart. But I think the thing about those moments on the farm are, for me as a writer, they're an opportunity to understand the interconnections between the domestic and the wild. You know, I had, I, I knew that we lose a proportion of, I mean, people will say you don't, but we do lose a proportion of lambs to eagles. That's that's fine. That's just the way it is. But at the same time, it's sort of holding in balance the rescue of this animal, knowing that it will come back, hopefully, and that it will possibly feed on an injured sheep. Yeah, it's just a really interesting moment to sort of tease out the connections that we have in the world between the domestic and the wild. The rain that had not come for so long and that terrible season of drought did finally arrive. Did you know it 
was coming? We get all our big rains from an easterly system. And easterly systems are really unpredictable. And so we knew it was coming and the predictions were fluctuating between a good rain and a devastating rain. So, you know, not all rains are equal. So we were braced for it, but um, it came up out of the blue very quickly. And yeah, it was really destructive for us, uh, which was just... Destructive. Yeah. We lost a lot of topsoil. We lost a lot of fences. We didn't lose any stock, but huge flood, huge flood. And so the duality of being thrilled that the drought had broken and the kind of holding on to the devast you know, at the, the same time there was this huge amount of work so to be done, dragging flood debris to be burned, rebuilding fences. Um, yeah, it was a really interesting time and it was also just the beginning of the pandemic. So the blessing of that was that my son, our son was home to help from boarding school. <laughs> yeah, well, thinking about your your kids who it was partly in order to mother them the way that you wanted that prompted you to leave Sydney for your family farm in Western New South Wales and then also to move to this other farm in Tasmania with them and give them a different kind of family life there. They've both grown, left the nest as as kids need to do and as we work as parents to getting them to do. What's that been like? Does it still feel like a bit of a shock when it it finally happens, that moment when your parenting responsibilities change in that way? Yeah, I often think that being a single mother for a period of time and taking on that mantle of responsibility just on my own sharpened the sense of both arrival as the kids left, like an arrival at another place, and also sharpened the sense of loss at them going, you know, that that I really did lay down my identity as an academic and and say, right, I am going to be a mother to these children first and foremost. And and I think any any mother has that experience. Mothers come in all shapes and sizes and all different ways. Like I think we are mothered in so many different ways by different people. You don't have to be a woman, I don't think, to mother necessarily. Yeah, so my children leaving has raised another set of, or sort of put a spotlight on what that identity shift means for the next stage of life. And then, you know, I often think you watch a dog have a litter of puppies and she's such a good mother for for sort of three weeks. And then suddenly they're just the last thing she wants to see. And she is just she gets, she goes, she moves through the, through mothering so quickly. And I think sometimes I need to take, (laughs) I could, could take a little bit of that on board as well. But. Well, how do you understand your responsibilities now? What, being a mother of young adults, what's your role? To be on the end of the phone, I guess, Um, to be available, but also supportive of the the distance that's between us, to sort of be excited about that, about the, like, I don't think there's anything more thrilling than watching a child go out into the world and feel that you've equipped them to navigate that. I am so sad saying goodbye to my children, but I'm also so excited and thrilled to see them gain independence. So it's a sort of a double-edged morning in some ways, yeah. Has it brought you a new kind of freedom? not just practically, but I don't know, psychically, your sense of yourself? Yeah, I think so. But I also think it's brought, before arriving at that place, it's confusing because you're you are so given to being the hands-on, you know, juggler of all the things, all the family's needs, that when that ceases to be your role, you suddenly wonder who on earth you are and how you would fill your time. I filled it way too successfully. Um, but but yeah, it's I think there is a, you know, taking off the cloak of motherhood and wearing it more lightly in this next phase. Yeah, it's an exciting time, but it's also disorientating. When you first moved to Tasmania, Maggie, you were unsure that it would ever feel like home. Does it feel like home now? Yeah, it does. 
It really does. And I feel like the gift of observation, of moving through the land, of of learning the seasons, of learning the birds, of learning the plants, of all of those things has gifted me a, a real sense of belonging there. You know, I've got a wonderful group of women that I walk with who are all sort of sixth generation Tasmanians and have had the wilderness of Tasmania gifted to them down through the generations of knowing where to go on walks. And they have shown me a part of Tasmania that, oh my gosh, I feel so privileged to have seen. And yeah, that also made a really big difference. That graph of your life that your mum made for you when you were 10 to comfort you before you faced your term at school in the city where she listed all of the things that mattered to you and were important to you. What would you add to that now at this stage of your life? I just want to underline all those things. (laughs) Yeah, I I want the things. I think I've realised that I want the things that I wanted as a 10-year-old now, that that's what's so important. Just, I guess, I would also add community. I didn't realise I needed that. But I've been gifted a writing community online, like I have a wonderful online writers group. And and also a community, a local community, I think is really important. So that's something that I didn't see as a 10-year-old that I would add to that. But yeah, please give me the horses, the dogs, the birds, the sheep. Maggie, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for being my guest on Conversations. And thank you for having me, Sarah. It feels like I've met a friend I've had for a very long time. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Good evening. I'm Helen Norville. And I'm Dale Jennings. And I'm Lee Sales. And I'm Lisa Miller. And we're so excited about the return of the newsreader on ABC TV. But even more exciting is our new companion podcast to the show. Season two of the newsreader promises more of the same newsroom power plays, complicated romances and general 80s goodness that made season one the ABC's biggest drama last year. This is a bullshit story. I feel like the way I love doesn't fit in anywhere. I knew that you were low, but I didn't think even you would stoop this low. If you're somebody who needs a debrief while you wait for the next episode, this podcast is for you. We'll talk about what's happening in the show, but also give you some context around the real 80s news events. We'll meet the creative minds behind the show and, of course, the stars. The Newsreader Season 2 starts Sunday, September 10, with this podcast dropping straight after the episodes go to air. Make sure you follow the Newsreader podcast on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a thing. That's it from us. Back to you in the studio, Dale. I'm Dale Jennings. This has been News at Six. Good night, Australia. And we're out.